0: Saints, good morning sinners. I'm glad that you tuned in today. Uh, We are coming to the end of our series on the Minor Prophets. Today we will look at the second last book, which is the book of Zechariah. Now, do something. Do something. How many times have we heard those two words put together? Maybe you've heard it said in a crisis when a life is at stake. Somebody do something, right? Maybe we're waiting for somebody else to, to make a decision so we can proceed with our own way of living. You know, kind of like you're driving behind a slow driver with their signal on, but they're staying in their lane and they're not moving over. You're just going, do something, right? Uh, for me, I, I, I had a do something moment. It was when Sharon and I, we went to Isotini, and, uh, you know, formerly known as Swaziland. We, and we went to this care point that we've brought up to your attention called Manguanini and we heard the stories we heard the stories of how people sold their kids for food we 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 saw with our own eyes uh, the living conditions in which people found themselves right across from the dump and how they would go and raid the dump to to survive and i i clearly remember saying to sharon we got to do something like we just can't just walk away and it 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 was one of those wake-up calls it was a wake-up call it you can't stand there and not do something and so what happens i we come back we come back home we present to you soul community the challenge that as a church we have to do the process of doing something and we did we were able to raise just over twelve thousand dollars so that that one care point could be supplied with food for an entire year that the basic needs just the simple basic needs of that care point, is being met and and that was all done by all of you who contributed to that i find it interesting how we can be motivated to do something together, specifically as a community that makes a difference on the other side of the globe. Not to mention when we come together to do something, even with our sister church in the north end at Living Word Temple and Pastor Paul. Do something. And, and, and the reason for the writing of Zechariah here in the Minor Prophets is has to do with inspiring the people to do something. And that something was to rebuild the temple. And I hope that we would be able actually to find some great common ground today, some points of application for our own lives uh, in this simple call to do something. Uh, there's also this idea in Zechariah of wake up, <laughs> wake up and do something. You know, how many times have we had that say to us, you know, wake up, you know, daily, weekly, whatever, right? Wake up or wake up and smell the coffee, you know, I'm a, my trip to Iswatini, was, it was really it was a wake-up moment for me, as if God was trying to get me off my comfortable couch to do something. And when we look at the book of Zechariah, God wakes him up and gives him a series of visions. Now, this book has been called by some the apocalypse of the Old Testament. It, it's kind of like the book of Revelation in the New Testament. You know, Zechariah is a book of prophecy. Its theme is to set forth the program of God, which is also the theme of the book of Revelation, right? The difference is that in Zechariah, Israel is in the foreground and the Gentile nations are in the background, while in the book of Revelation, the Gentile nations are in the foreground and the continuous thread ties them together together the one thing that ties them all together is the nation of Israel. So it's, it's really an interesting book when you take the time to study and to read it. But what we're going to do is we're going to simplify it all, and we're going to just narrow it down to five simple questions. Who wrote the book? Where are we in history? Why is this book so important? What's the main message, and how do I apply it to my life? So let's jump in. Who wrote the book? Well, obviously, Zechariah. We, you know, we usually read through the openings of these verses without thinking of them or without thinking that they have any significance. But remember that in many times, Hebrew names have meaning. And the most outstanding example, maybe perhaps, uh, of Hebrew names is that of Methuselah. Okay, um, That was the oldest man who ever lived, according to the Scriptures. And his name has a meaning. And his name uh, translated is, when he dies, it will come. So Methuselah means, when he dies, it will come. And when he died, according to the scriptures, the flood came, just as the name prophesied. So the first verse of Zechariah actually reveals something to us in a very interesting way. Let me read it here. It says, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edu. Okay, so you're going, well, what does that mean? Well, here, here we have three names that are very significant. Zachariah means God remembers. His father's name means God blesses. And his grandfather's name, Edu, means at the appropriate appointed time. So God remembers and God blesses at the appointed time. And so that is the theme of the book of Zechariah. It's a book of encouragement, when you think about it, to the people of Israel. And so we know that the author is Zechariah himself, the grandson of this priest, right? Um, And Zechariah prophesied to the people of Judah after they returned from their 70 years of exile in Babylon. Zechariah's grandfather returned with him from Babylon uh and so he's got this young grandson in tow uh, and so these are the first Israelites who come back it's probably 538 BC they came back under the decree of Cyrus the king of Persia and he's describing his family lineage you know Zechariah was a priest in addition to being a prophet he therefore would have had this, intimate familiarity with with worship practices of the Jews, even though he never really served in a complete temple. So he has an idea of what's going on. This is who it is. This is who wrote the book. So where are we in history? Again, Zechariah is a contemporary of Haggai, who we looked at two weeks ago. And and just for your information, the last three prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, who we'll look at next week, they all prophesied after the exile was complete. But Zechariah is a young man especially when compared to Haggai, who was probably 70 plus. But uh, he comes along Haggai at the same time to deliver messages from God to the Jewish remnant uh, who just recently returned. But they each have their own style. Haggai and Zechariah, two different styles. And although they're back in Jerusalem, they're both calling people to rebuild the, the temple and the city, they're still these subjects to Babylon. They're vassals of Babylon. You know, they're, they're subjected to the Gentile nations around them. There's there's a lot of the despair that's still going on. There's not a lot of hope for the future. And so what we see, and it's crazy because it's like our time, we see that there's this discouraging, depressing time, and there's this spirit of dark pessimism that grips these people. And Zechariah comes, and he comes in their midst of their depression and their gloom with an announcement that is wrapped up With his name, with his ancestry, guys, God remembers, God blesses at the appointed time, and he begins to deliver it. He dates his visions and his messages that we read in chapters 1 to 8. Uh, They all take place in the general same time period as Haggai's, um, beginning basically in October to November of 520 B.C. with a call for the people of Judah to repent. He then receives eight visions on one restless night in February, February 15th, 519. It's followed by four other messages that he preaches on December 7th of 518. And his, five, his final messages in chapters 9 to 14, they're actually undated. Uh, The mention of Greece in in chapter 9, verse 13, suggests that these prophecies came much later in his life, presumably in the 480s, you know, just before Ezra and Nehemiah show up to revitalize the Jewish people once again. So Haggai's overall message two weeks ago was more of a cautionary tone to it, you know, pointing out the Jews' sin and self-focus. Remember, they were focused on themselves and not focused on building the temple Zechariah shows up, and he's emphasizing a tone of encouragement. Encouragement to the struggling Israelites who are trying to build the temple. So why is this book so important? Well, when you actually sit down and you begin to study the book, what we see is that it contains the clearest and largest number of messianic passages amongst the prophets, the minor prophets. It points to Jesus. Um, he's really talking about the coming of Jesus. We read that in in Zechariah nine. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion! Shout, daughter Jerusalem! See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, uh, triumphal entry. You know, it, it it's possible to think of the book of Zechariah as a kind of miniature Isaiah, right? Zechariah pictures Jesus both in his first coming, and in his second coming, like chapters nine uh, to uh, verse ten to chapter ten verse twelve. That that's that focus. Jesus will come. And according to Zechariah, Jesus is going to come as Savior. He's going to come as judge and ultimately as the righteous ruling king um, in Jerusalem. And we see that laid out before us. So what's the main message then of the book? The book is dominated with what we call apocalyptic. <laughs> I always struggle. I'm always in my office going over this word. Apocalyptic Language. And uh, the first part of the book is dominated with the eight visions that God gave to Zechariah. Um, let's take a moment. Let's just read uh, the first six verses and, and dive into what this book has to say to us today. Verse 1 Again, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edu. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, remember that, and I will return to you. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now, and the prophets? do they live forever? But did not my words, my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, Overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. The first part of this book is based upon eight visions. The last part uh, is dominated with messianic prophecy, prophecy about Jesus, about his first coming and second coming. Let me just quickly summarize the eight visions that uh, God gave Zechariah to spur people towards the completion of the temple in chapter one verse seven uh, in, in, in chapter one sorry we have the vision of the the horsemen of, of different colors um, uh, this vision is a representation of um, of God's plan to rebuild Jerusalem and that we are under god's watchful care this is what I uh, Zechariah was trying to communicate the second vision of four horns and four craftsmen. It sounds really weird, this imagery and all this this crazy stuff, but we need to see that this vision also represents God's power uh, over the powers of the known world. God promised that he is going to destroy the powers of of the world in the messianic age. And so there's these promises that are coming. They're supposed to be encouragement to these people who are in rough times. The third vision is called the measuring line. It's another reminder that God is the master builder. He is at work. He is going to rebuild that Jerusalem. He's going to make them mighty again. The fourth vision was one of the high priests. The vision here is that the part of the process of preparing for the Messiah, who is to come in the future that they would have to have a spiritual cleansing uh, take place. And it, where does it start? It starts with the high priest, and then it moves to the rest of the nation. So there's a message to these, vi- to these visions he's getting to the people. He has a fifth vision, which is the golden lampstand and two olive trees in chapter 4. Now, one of the primary concerns of this book is obviously the rebuilding of the temple. And so it shouldn't surprise us to see a chapter kind of devoted to this subject in front of us. And the obstacles encountered by the returnees are recounted again when you go to the book of Ezra, chapter 4 and 5. We read the struggles that are going on. And so this chapter, or well, yeah, this chapter, this vision, was to encourage the governor, Zerubbabel, and and to encourage him to complete the task. That lampstand is... uh, is a symbol of God's presence. It's a symbol of God's provision, his protection, and his strength to help Zerubbabel organize and finish the temple. We have a sixth vision of a flying scroll that symbolizes with God dealing sin. And along that we have another vision, the seventh one, which is a woman in a basket. And again, it it just symbolizes God dealing with sin when you take time to study it. And then finally there's an eighth vision of four chariots. And it's interesting, his visions end the same way they began, right? With horses who are involved in all areas of the earth. And in the first vision, the problem is with all the nations are at peace while Jerusalem was in trouble. And God at that time promised that the nations would be judged. And so the the visions close now with Zechariah with a a symbolic prediction that the nations are going to be judged. And this vision assures the peace of God to reign in the world. So things are going to turn on its head. So, in summary, what happens is God awakens Zechariah. He wakens him in the night, he gets his attention. And God begins to remind Zechariah of his power, of his presence, of his plan to bring peace, uh, and his continuing desire to deal with sin, to deal with the evil in the world. And God uses all these visions, and, uh, and uh, Zechariah is preaching to encourage the people of uh, Judah to rebuild the temple. It's all about encouragement. Of course, Zechariah's name was the appropriate... Uh, to the purpose of the prophecy, remember, God remembers. His book brims over with the hope that God would remember, that God he would remember His promises to the people, and even after all the time that they've spent outside in a different country, that God would remember. And and so what happens is we see that He does remember. And so he uses Zechariah, and he uses the structure of eight visions that I mentioned. He uses four sermons or messages in chapter 7, and he uses the ap- uh, apocalyptic section in chapters 9 to 14, and where, he, where we see him looking to the distant future. He talks about the rejection of the Messiah in chapter 9, and then he talks about the Messiah's future reign from Jerusalem. So he's telling the people, look at someone's coming. Someone's coming. And uh, it gives them hope. And like many of the prophets, Zechariah saw isolated snapshots of the future. Therefore, certain events seem to occur one right after another when we begin to read the prophecies, but they actually occurred within generations and even a millennia between them. And for, um, you got to think about it this way, for people who um, uh, just returned from exile, Zechariah provided a specific prophecy about their immediate and distant future, no, no doubt it was a great encouragement because it was there. Their nation was judged for sin; we we, we saw that, but they would also be cleansed and restored. That's the hope, and God would rebuild—not just the temple, but God would rebuild His people. So that's the book. How do we apply that to our lives? You know, I've said that when we read the minor prophets, we have to look at it as we're looking into a mirror. And as I look at this, there are a few questions that actually come to mind when, when we studied this. And, and the first question that came to mind is, what does God want us to do? Like, how do you study this and ask the question, what does God want us to do? Especially in light of what we're going through. Let's say uh, this pandemic, right? We're now in, in crazy orders. You know, We all have our feelings and our opinions, but we're in lockdown. But what does God want us, or what does God want you to do? Have you been able to actually give that question any thought? What will it take for us, or what will it take for you, to do that something? What is that something? Maybe you're watching and you're struggling with the, the uh, discouragement. Like, especially now. You know, I, if you're to read Zechariah, I think that the, the book contains its shares of judgments on the people of Judah and beyond, yes. But it also overflows with, with hope in the future reign of Jesus over his people. I think it's very easy for all of us just to get caught up in the depressing events of day-to-day life, right? We get so focused to the neg- negativity on social media or uh, media in general that we begin to lose our perspective, and we begin to live as people without hope. Maybe that's you today. The book of Zechariah serves as a correction for that tendency in our lives. Look, at we as believers, sometimes we need to be reminded that we have a hope that is sure. And that's refreshing and that's encouraging. We have that. We need to be reminded of that. We need to change our focus. We need to do something. And what is that something that God is asking you to do? I want to take you back to the fifth vision because in it we see one of the most important truths in the book and one of the most important truths, in my opinion, in the whole Bible. We read this truth in Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6. It says, so he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. I want to camp here. I actually could have preached this passage last Sunday because last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday. You know, when we read the first three visions, we see that they're all related to the, uh, the promises of God. God promised uh, that, uh, that through him the temple was going to be rebuilt. He, he was going to be the power over the world powers. He was going to be that master builder that he would take that measuring line. He, he would help set those foundations. This was his promise. So what has God promised us? And I think we need to be careful with this question because we certainly don't need to make things up that we want and call it God's promises, right? But at the same time, we have his promises in Scriptures for some things. Are you ready for that? As a matter of fact, there are many promises in Scripture, but I'm just going to give you a few. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church. And he did. Acts 1.8, there was this promise of power to be witnesses throughout the world, that God would send his comforter, the Holy Spirit. Hebrews says that he will never leave us or forsake us. And finally in Philippians 4.13, there is his promises to do all things through him. Do you see that God is the central part? He is that magnet that brings us together. And here we have an amazing message given to Zerubbabel a descendant of King David who, having returned from the Babylonian captivity, his job was to govern Jerusalem. He was the chosen one by God to start the rebuilding of the temple. He was told by Zechariah that God would carry out the work, not by his might nor by his power, but by God's spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And this divine revelation is as relevant today as it was centuries ago. I think we all have to come to an understanding that the Lord himself will carry out his plans, which he alone has purposed, not by might, not by power, not by my might, not by my power, but by his spirit. In other words, God's spirit is at work in you. Do you see it? You know, Zerubbabel was not told how God was going to carry out his plans and purposes. He had to trust him daily. There was a daily trust. Listen, God is working his purpose out day to day, year to year. We're not always privy to the plans of God that he has set out in his will. It's not just the way it is. But remember, Zerubbabel had to take a step every day. He had to face tremendous difficulties as he sought to carry out the work that God had prepared for him beforehand to do. He had to surround himself with people so that he can accomplish the task. People who could do stuff better than he could. And for him, he was, you know, given an assurance by, by Zechariah from God that he would not complete the task on his own power, on his own might, but that God was there with him in spirit. We need to re- be reminded of that that regardless of where you find yourself and the difficulties that you are and the tasks that lay ahead, you're not going to do it on your might, you're not going to do it on your power, but God's Spirit is going to help walk you through here. You know, we face uh, increasing pressures in our own day and age at, at times that we're tempted, and I'm tempted, to, to consider that the task of living by faith and trusting the Lord sometimes can be overwhelming, right? Especially in the midst of a crazy generation, especially in the midst of a pandemic. Nevertheless, the word here that we have from God is as true for us today as it was so many centuries ago. That God who started, think about it, God who started a good work in you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. Not by might, nor by power, but by his spirit. He has started something in you. He's not done with you just yet. And sometimes we get distracted. And God spoke these words to Zerubbabel to challenge him, but to encourage him. And these words were good and comforting words. It was God saying, Zerubbabel, my spirit is involved in this process. And what was applied here to the rebuilding of the temple actually applies to us today. And so I want to give you three things for you to remember. And first, it's God's power that's important, not ours. In a day where we focus on ourselves, it is God's power that is important, not ours. God says to Zacharias, the "Zerubbabel is going to rebuild the temple, but he doesn't have the, the might, the power that the original builders had beforehand. There's an acknowledgement right off the bat that the human capabilities are lacking here. They just don't have it. They don't have the skill set. But God says, that's all right, because I'm not concerned about the power and the might that they possess. The power of the Spirit is going to be enough. In other words, God's saying, leave it up to me. I'll help you get it done. Now think about it. It's, we, we face this thing in our own world. Look, we're, we're spiritual creatures, right? We live in a world um, that, as human beings, I actually believe that we don't have the human resources to defeat Satan. Now, that's going to cause a lot of interesting conversation around the table today. But see, the scriptures are very clear. They teach that Satan is our enemy. That uh, according to Peter, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. In other words, he is constantly at work. And even now, when you look at it and you look at our culture, many are discouraged with all this COVID stuff and restrictions and death and stress and anxiety, abuse. Put your issue in there whatever it is. And Satan is a deceiver, he's a liar, and he possesses powers enough to render our mission impossible. And he's constantly trying to throw us off our game. I like old hymns. Martin Luther wrote a great hymn called The Mighty Fortresses Are God. And and he understands what I just said. And he, he takes his theology and he puts it to, to lyrics in a song. And part of Uh, one of the lyrics says, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. In other words, Satan's looking to get us out. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. So here Luther just makes it very clear that, you know, Satan's running around like crazy. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? In other words, we can't do it on our own. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's choosing. In other words, we need Jesus in our lives. We can't do it on our own. We need Jesus. And if we're left to ourselves, we would be defeated by Satan. Our powers are no match for his. But it's not our power, people. It's God's power in us, not by might, not by power, but by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. You read in 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us that the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, he says, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Where do we get that arsenal? We get it from the Holy Spirit. The next verse tells us that we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And sometimes that's what we need to do, especially during this time of pandemic right? We need to do something. We need to wake up. And, and, and as Paul says here, take captive. How's your mind doing? I know lots of us are tired, right? We're tired. Let's just say it. But how are we taking captive? How are we protecting our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our souls? How are we doing that? We have to do something. Look at, we're not left unarmed. The Spirit is there with us. I was trying to figure out an illustration and, and, uh, I don't want us to get shut down during our live stream, so I'm refraining from using um, any type of uh, videos. But there's a great movie out there called Crocodile Dundee. It's an 80s movie. Some of you need to watch it because you weren't even born. But it's gold. Crocodile Dundee is gold. And there's a scene where Dundee's he's walking um, down the street uh, and he's with his girlfriend, and some some guy, and then a couple of his goons jump out, and you know, ask for a light, and then of course they pull a knife and ask for his wallet, and and you know, Dundee's girlfriend is is, is terrified. Just give him your wallet, and then he looks at her and goes like, "What for?" In his you know, Australian accent, <laughs> she goes, "Well, he's got a knife." And Dundee remains calm, and in the scene he pulls, reaches back, and he pulls out this huge knife about. 10 times the size of the, the robber's little blade. And he says, that's not a knife. That's a knife. He's got the power, right? You know, we have to remember that, that we are empowered, that we have an arsenal ahead of us. Remember that when Jesus left this earth, he commissioned his disciples. And he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the other ends of the earth. Jesus said that we would receive power, that in the Greek, that word is dunamis, where we get our English word dynamite, that we would be dynamite, power to accomplish God's mission, right? Which would otherwise be humanly impossible. It's the Holy Spirit's difference. It's that knife, so to speak, that power. One theologian said that this power of the Holy Spirit creates a powerful people who have had his powerful presence carrying out God's powerful program. It started with some weak guys who fled from Jesus during his darkest time in the garden. Spiritually weak guys who ran when the going got tough, even though they said that they were going to be with them. But they were obedient when they were told to wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And they received power from the Holy Spirit after they were obedient. After they were told to wait. And they not only received power, they were able to preach and thousands were saved. Acts 4.13 tells us that the Jewish authorities marveled at the courage and nothing could stop them even after they were beaten in order to stop preaching. They went out and preached some more where, you know, where did they get that power? Where did they get that gumption? Where did they get that encouragement? They got it from the Holy Spirit. And I think that that's probably what we're needing now more than ever, especially in our own little homes all over Manitoba, and, and wherever else you're watching from, with this pandemic around us. We need more of God's presence in our life. We need to captive those negative thoughts, and we need to be able to focus around and figure out what is God asking us to do. And we need to do something. See, the Spirit empowered the early Christians to work miracles as they proclaimed, as they preached the gospel. He empowered them with hope and and strength when they were going through difficult times. Even when they were going through times of persecution and death, the Holy Spirit was there with them. He gave power to the preaching of the early church so that when the disciples, as they were filled with the Spirit, they were proclaiming the word boldly and people knew that something was happening. Now listen to me. We have been given the task of building God's kingdom. And I don't need to remind you that... The task of building the church here on the globe is humanly impossible unless the Holy Spirit empowers us. And we will receive more than adequate power to accomplish this task. And so maybe we all need to take some time today and look deep inside. Look deep inside, guys. Get your mind off all this negativity all around us. What is God asking you to do? Secondly, it's God's power that removes the obstacles, not our power. right? We, it's God's power that removes stuff, not ours. We, we're so dependent on ourselves, I can do it, right? But we read in Zechariah 4, it says, What are you, Almighty Mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God, bless it, God bless it. What's being said here is that there are those who are going to rebuild the temple, and they're going to face all sorts of obstacles. But God promised, he promised that he would open a way for them. And this is not very different than what Jesus said in a promise in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, where he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He then begins to go on and he begins to say this. He says, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What's he doing here? He's reminding We need to be reminded that wherever we find ourselves, as believers, we are ministers. We, as believers, we are God's representatives. And God wants us to look out for those who need to hear about him. We need that reminder. Don't get caught up with everything else. Just remind us who we are and what our goal and what our job is. People need to hear about God. They need to experience him. They need to have his hope and, and life, experience life to the fullest. Right now, more than ever, people need to be encouraged, healed, and blessed. And as you and I, when we sit back and figure out, okay, what do we need to do? As we begin to take a step of faith, as we begin to minister, as we begin to look beyond ourselves, God does away with the spiritual opposition that begins to hinder us. God begins to remove those obstacles and God even overcomes the obstacles of our own inability that we create. Well, what are you talking about? When God called Moses in the Old Testament, I want you to go and rescue my people out of Egypt. Moses in Exodus chapter four, he protests and he says this, he says, Lord, I've never been so eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. In other words, he was probably a stutterer what does God say? Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, said the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak, and I'll teach you what to say. And see, so many times you and I, we make excuses as to why God can't use us. And yet he's so patient. He's so patient with us, and yet we look for those excuses. And Moses went on. What does he do? Even in his excuse, he becomes obedient, and he takes that step forward, and he goes on to lead the children of Israel with all his insecurities in tow because God was going to teach him. And in that process, God reveals himself, and, and people are moved, and people are changed, and people are encouraged, and the list goes on and on. Why? Because he was obedient, because he did something, not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit. Can I be honest? <laughs> I, I honestly long for a time that we can gather again together face to face. And I know I'm not alone. The one thing I, I miss, really, is seeing people being moved to tears, either if it's through worship, if it's the prayer time at the crosses, or if it's just the simple preaching preachings of the Scripture I yeah I miss us being together but being in the moment in those gatherings where God moments are taking place the moment where God breaks in and everybody knows he's at work you can sense the spirit working and I long to see that again I long to experience it corporately again and right now for me this thought is a constant reminder That it's not what I say or do as a pastor, but rather is God working in our community through our people. That's the most important thing. And is he still overcoming the obstacles of even this pandemic that stand in the way? And I'm an obstacle at times that stands in the way as well. And so we find ourselves in a major obstacle called a pandemic today. And as believers, as we serve God, as we become obedient to his voice and what he wants us to do, as we look at, do you want some ideas? As we begin to reach out to others, reach out to friends, reach out to families, reach out to neighbors who are hurting, as we accomplish the mission that God has given us, remember that we do this, that we minister not in our might, not in our power, but look at you minister under the power of the Holy Spirit. And as you begin to move forward, God begins to remove the obstacles. It's easy for you to just encourage somebody with a text, with a phone call. You know, again, we can't gather together with a Facebook post, whatever. Do whatever it takes to reach out to people who need help. Be Jesus with the flesh on. Be the vehicle that God can use. God will enable us to overcome whatever spiritual opposition to the sharing of the message of Jesus is God calling you to do? Finally, God rejoices over our work. Zechariah 4.10 says, who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. You know, it turns out that there were some people in the, who came back f- from exile who saw the original temple and they saw the new one being rebuilt and, well, it was obviously insignificant to the old one. You know, the the temple project may have been just a small thing in the eyes of some people, this rebuilding of the temple. But we do know from Haggai to God, it was a great source of joy. It was the number one priority. And so you have to look at it this way, that you and I have to be reminded that in a dark day, where joy suckers, right, are trying to sap your strength, Or when you find yourself caught looking back of what was or what used to be. Or whatever else you want to categorize. Listen, folks. God delights in using the small things. The small things to get the final thing done. What does he have in store for you? What does God want you to do? God used Moses' rod in Exodus chapter 4. He uses David's sling in 1 Samuel 17, in Judges chapter 15, he uses a jawbone of a donkey. I wanted to use a King James quote there, but I thought I'd keep it family friendly. In Judges 4, he uses a hammer and a tent peg. That's a great story. Interesting. In Joshua chapter 2, he uses a piece of rope. In Acts chapter 9, it's a basket. It's loaves and fish in John chapter 6. It's a cup of cold water in Matthew ten forty-two, He even uses mud in John chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. So God loves to use small things because when the Spirit empowers those small things, there's no telling what can happen. What's something small that you can do as a minister of God to the people around you? I'm sure you can think of it. I don't know what abilities you have, but I do know that if you're a believer, you've received a spiritual gift. When speaking of spiritual gifts, the Apostle Paul, he wrote in in 1 Corinthians, all of these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he gives them to each one just as he determines. And so when we use our spiritual gifts, and even if we consider them to be small, we're showing the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And God delights in using small things. I don't know if you can see it. See, our success is not ultimately tied to our strength or our skill or our intellect or our personality and certainly not our resources. But in fact, God says that our victory will not be based on any of that, but rather it will be based on him. Do you see how that impacts us? What is God wanting you to do? Because we need to be careful to ask the right questions. We, We need to be careful to count the cost, so to speak. But let us not say, well, I can't. Because something's too big or something's too expensive or too whatever for us, right? But God, in fact, if we confine our thinking to what we can do, what we can manage, what we can afford, maybe we haven't thought enough. Maybe God wants you to use something small to do something big. Charles Spurgeon said this, it's, It is extra, extraordinary power from God, not talent, that wins the day. It's extraordinary spiritual unction, not extraordinary mental power that we need. Mental power may fill a chapel, but spiritual power fills a church with soul anguish. Mental power may gather a large congregation, but only spiritual power will save souls. And what we need is spiritual power. You know, God's plan for the children of Israel was that when they came back from the exile, that they came back with a mission from God to rebuild the temple. Again, this is what both Haggai and Zechariah talk about. And ultimately we see in Zechariah, the plan of God starts to unravel or open up. uh, Unfold would be the word. And we have the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. But ultimately the plan is all based on one word. It's all based on relationship. And Zechariah said it very clearly in the third verse of chapter one. I read it earlier. It says, return to me and what? I will return to you. Let me encourage you today. I want to encourage you to continue to walk in obedience with God, even in these tough times. Because even in the tough times, he is there leading us and he's walking with us and he's using us to minister to other people. Do something. The power of the Holy Spirit is given for a specific reason. To enable us as believers to be effective witnesses for Jesus Christ. But God also promises his spirit to enable and empower us to accomplish the task that he has left with us to do and to complete. Do something. Talk about amongst yourself as a family. What is God asking you to do? I look at myself. I can't transform lives. I can't convict people. I can't be an effective pastor or on my own strength. Because on our own, we aren't very powerful. We don't have the abilities and the boldness necessary to turn the world upside down with the truth of the gospel. But that's all right because God says something very clear. He says, says, look at Jerry, it's not by might, it's not by power, uh, sorry, it's not by might nor your power, but by my spirit. And God removes the obstacles and he turns our small gifts, he turns our small offerings into wonderful things that can be used to please him and to minister to the people that he's placed around you. Do something. Wake up and do something. And what's God calling you to do? Will you pray with me? Will you pray with me today that God would continue to empower us to be a difference maker in this world? Father, I thank you for the encouragement that we get from the Word of God, which is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. Thank you that we are equipped to carry out your work in our lives, not through our own might or our own cleverness or our own intelligence, but through your Spirit who lives in us. And we need to be reminded of that. So Lord, teach us to examine ourselves and to walk in earnest and honesty before you and to realize that all this is designed so that we may come into the understanding and the experience of a time of glory with uh, with you that we have never known before. Father, I pray that you'd make these words to be the experience of each of us as we learn to walk before you, our living God, and to know what it means to have the glory of the Lord within now to him who is able to do immediately more than all we can ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Forever and ever I pray. Amen. Soul Sanctuary, the blessing for you. And this is well, I hope you're ready for it. So, in ancient times, the one who gave the blessing extended his hands, and one those receiving the blessing did likewise. If you want a blessing, just put your hands up, and here it is. Soul Sanctuary, as you enter a new week. Listen very carefully. May you experience God's presence. May you feel God pouring out the Holy Spirit over your heads, over your thoughts, over your words, and over your lips. May you feel the Holy Spirit dwell in your hearts, feelings, and emotion, and compassion for all others, over your hands, over your feet, especially as you put into action all that God commands you to do. So do something. And during this week, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each of you. Amen. Now go in peace and live the church. We'll see you next week.